It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Rather than rushing kids into adulthood, we should be trying to find ways to give them opportunities to have experiences during their early 20s that help take advantage of the fact that the brain is still malleable. Lawrence Steinberg is a professor of psychology at Temple University and author of Age of Opportunity, Lessons from the New Science of Adolescence. At the Aspen Ideas Festival, he spoke about building better teen brains. Steinberg says the brain is malleable, or plastic, from zero to age three. But there's another period of brain development during adolescence. It's during this time, he says, that adulthood should be delayed. Instead of settling into a job and marriage, having new or novel experiences like traveling and going to grad school can be especially enriching. In this discussion, Steinberg also talks about why teenage brains are essentially tailor-made for risk-taking. Why is sweet sweeter, sex sexier, and booze tastier when you're 17 years old? He explains why these sensations are more pronounced than at any other age, and what parents can do to help their kids stay out of trouble. Time Magazine editor Nancy Gibbs interviews Steinberg. Here's their conversation. Larry's most recent book is The Age of Opportunity, uh, which really focuses on the new brain science of adolescence. And I think what is most heartening about it is of all the enterprises that we embark on as human beings, it is possible that raising children, and particularly raising adolescents, is, is among the most challenging and humbling and so I think that the fact that you give us tools with which to think about it and hopefully do it better is just a wonderful thing. So um, just for starters, I wonder if you could give us the most high-altitude kind of primer on brain science of what we know now about the adolescent brain that was not factored in when we were designing our high schools, designing our sex ed programs, designing the way we approach this age group of what we now know that is, that is new. Sure. Um, well, there are a few kind of broad themes, and one of them is that we now know that brain development continues much longer um, than we ever had anticipated. Uh, I went to graduate school in the 1970s, and we were taught then that the brain was pretty much done developing by the time you were 10 or 11 years old. And the reason uh, is that the brain reaches its adult size by that age. And because we didn't have the technology that we do now to be able to look inside it, it just was assumed that it was done. You know, I mean, you reached your adult height at a certain time, and that meant you stopped growing, and your brain got to be a certain size, and that meant that your brain stopped developing. So now we know that brain development continues um, well into the early 20s, um, perhaps a little bit later than that. Um, we'll talk more, I hope, about the fact that the brain still changes after then. If we learn anything, it has to change. Um, but, but in terms of development, I think it probably matures sometime 23, 24, 20, you know, right around there. So that's lesson number one. Um, lesson number two is that um, there are specific regions of the brain where development is taking place in adolescence that aren't, that, that aren't taking place with as much vigor in other developmental periods, and that would be the prefrontal cortex, so the area right behind your forehead, um, and certain aspects of the limbic system, which is a deep structure inside the brain that's important for processing emotions and social information and the experiences of, of pleasure and punishment. That's where the action is 
during adolescence. Um, and then the third is that, and, and this is a more, um, more, more recent discovery, in fact, very, very recent, and forms the basis, really, of the argument in the book, is that we never knew how malleable the adolescent brain is until very recently. Now, I would imagine that most of you here, and there have been some panels on this topic at this festival, most of you are familiar with the idea that the period from zero to three, or zero to five, is a time when the brain is very malleable, very plastic is the word we use. Um, and we've known that for a while, and that's why it's important to invest in early childhood programs, um, because that's a time when we can really influence brain development in important ways. But what we've discovered more recently, I'd say, you know, we, within the last five years or so, is that there's a second period of heightened brain plasticity, and that period is adolescence. And so, you know, the argument that, that I make is that we should be thinking about adolescence in many of the same ways that we think about early childhood as, as um, an opportunity, and that's where the title of the book comes from. So one of the reasons we had problem even defining how many of us are still traveling through the valley of the shadow of adolescence or have come out of it is when does it start and when does it begin? And one of the points you make is that it starts sooner and lasts longer, and there are real implications to both of those things. So let's start with, the, with how soon it starts now. Right. So typically we, we think about adolescence from a scientific point of view as beginning in biology and ending in culture. I mean, it begins with the onset of puberty, um, and it ends when people make the transition into the social roles of adulthood. So if you look at changes in the onset of puberty over time, what you find is that the age has been dropping. It's declining very, very steadily. It has been declining since scientists have been tracking it, which is around the middle 1800s. Um, the, the index that most of us use to measure the onset of puberty or, the, or the, the age of puberty in a population is the age at which girls get their first period, um, menarche. And we use that because that's something that's in medical records and it's something that people remember. And it turns out from research that women can recall quite well how old they were when they began menstruating. So if you just graph the age of menarche over time, it has fallen and fallen and fallen. So to put it in a kind of modern perspective, at the beginning of the 20th century, the average American girl got her first period around 14 and a half. And today, it's about 12. So that's a big drop in a relatively short period of time. Now, it's hard to get comparable data on boys because there isn't quite the same um, obvious measure. Um, but there's some really clever studies. One of them that I love is a study that has looked at data from children's choirs. Um, and, uh, you know, when you have a children's choir and the boys go through that awkward period when their voice breaks, they can no longer sing what they were supposed to be singing. And there are data on when boys in children's choirs go through their voice breaking. And that has declined at the same rate um, that menarche in, in girls has. And one thing important about menarche that you all should know is that it's not the first event of puberty. It's one of the last events of puberty. So when we say that the average American girl gets her first period around the age of 12, that doesn't mean that the average girl enters puberty around 12. That's almost finished with it around 
put. Well, I found it shocking when you pointed out that how many elementary school teachers, even potentially kindergarten teachers, are, are going to be confronting the fact that there are girls in their classrooms that are starting to enter puberty, puberty at age six, at age seven. Right. Um, and so, and it's, not, it's not a tiny, tiny number. And, and it's declining. We have, uh, if, if you want, we can discuss why. Well, I think uh, some of the factors, I think, are, f are really surprising. And so I'd love you to... to sure. Um, so, so first let me say that, that initially, when, when it was first discovered that the age of menarche had declined, let's say, between the 1850 and 1950, the, the main explanation was that health conditions and nutrition conditions had improved, and we know that when kids are healthier and when moms are healthier during pregnancy, that kids grow faster, and that was the typical explanation for this. And generally speaking, in developed countries, kids go through puberty at a younger age than in um, uh, underdeveloped or developing countries. But since 1950 or so, there have not been the kinds of changes and improvements in health and nutrition that would account for the age still declining at the rate that it's declined. So we think it's due to five things. Probably the most important is obesity. Right? So um, obese children go through puberty um, earlier than thin children do, and we know there's been an epidemic of childhood obesity here and in other industrialized countries, and so the average age of puberty will come down when there are more obese kids in the population. Um, a second um, is exposure to chemicals in our environment that interfere with normal hormonal so function. So these are endocrine disruptors. And endocrine disruptors are ubiquitous in modern society. They're probably, uh, I would guess, in the chairs that you are sitting on right now. So it's not just in food. Um, it's in plastics. Um, it's in pesticides. It's in a lot of cosmetics. And in the book, I sort of list some of the things, if you're a parent, that you should look for on the labels, which are known endocrine disruptors. And we know that th their use has expanded and kids have um, changed in their development as a result. So that's a second. Um, a third, and one that's really interesting and I think a surprise to most people, I can tell by your smile that what, what, what does it, you know what I'm going to say, uh, is, uh, is exposure to artificial light. Gee, like... This like, kind? Yes, like that kind, and especially like that kind. Um, so uh, we, we know that exposure to natural light hastens the onset of puberty. Kids who grow up near the equator go through puberty earlier than kids who grow up near the poles. That's because they have more cumulative sunlight exposure over the course of childhood. Um, but we also know that natural light accelerates development. I mean, if you're any poultry farmers in here, um, so one way to get your birds to grow up faster is to keep the lights on longer. And it turns out that artificial light has some of the same effects um, on pubertal maturation and the kind of light that's emitted from smartphones and tablets and computer screens um, has more uh, of that effect than other kinds of artificial light does. So that's been a contributing factor. Those are probably the three most important. There's two others that I'll just say very, very briefly. Um, there's some evidence that Girls, in particular, who grew up in families where there's a lot of conflict, go through puberty on average a little bit earlier. And there may be a connection between the increase in the divorce rate um, in, uh, over the 20th century and pubertal maturation. I think it's probably been a small contributor. And then finally, um, kids who are born low birth weight go through puberty earlier than kids who are born normal weight. Um, and there's been just a huge jump in the survival 
of low birth weight children, and so that will bring down the average as well. So th there, there, there are things, uh, and things that we could do something about if we wanted to. So before we get to that, I, I was struck by the fact that, that you suggest that this is more of a detriment to girls than it is to boys. Yes, clearly is. Um, and it is for, uh, uh, for, for, for two main reasons. One is that there's clear evidence that if, you, that if you're a girl and you go through puberty earlier, your risk of developing uh, breast cancer um, or ovarian cancer is much, much, much higher than if you go through puberty later. So it clearly has a very important physical health risk for girls. Um, the second is that there's a very, very large literature on psychological functioning during adolescence that shows that early maturing girls are at much greater risk for depression, for anxiety, for eating disorders, for substance abuse, for precocious sexual activity, for delinquency, for all kinds of things. Um, it's a complicated story, but, but I think the, the, the main story is a two-part story. One part of it is that if you're an early maturing girl, you get a lot of attention from boys, and you get a lot of attention from older boys, and they draw you into activities at a younger age than you would ordinarily um, be involved in, like drinking and smoking and sex. Um, and for some girls, trying to deal with that when you're still only 10 or 11 or 12 years old is quite stressful. And it leads girls to become anxious and depressed and, and nervous. Um, and, 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 and also, I think it's still true, sadly enough, that there's a conflict in America for young women between being sexually attractive and doing well in school. And it's not a conflict that boys have to deal with at all. But girls do, and they still tell us today that they do. And then the flip side of that is that early maturing boys are put in leadership positions. Right. They're, there's an upside to that. There's this downside for girls. There's a corollary upside for boys. Exactly. Exactly. So developing, and, and remember that girls go through puberty about a year and a half earlier than boys do. So if you're early maturing and you're a girl, you're really early compared to everybody else. Um, and you're just forced to confront a whole set of issues about your appearance, about your sexuality, about what does it mean to be female at an age when you're not emotionally as equipped to be able to deal with it. Whereas for boys, you know, you go to the top of the class in terms of who wants you to be on the basketball team and what, you know, people looking up to you and adults asking you to be the hall monitor if they still do that sort of thing or, or whatever. So it's a clear advantage for boys in, in that respect. So what, before we move on to the other end of the adolescent spectrum, what are things that, that parents and teachers can do to help offset some of the implications of this earlier onset? Well, I mean, certainly there are some things that we can do to help re reduce the, the prevalence of the factors that contribute to early puberty, right? I mean, and they will have other beneficial effects as well. So we can do things to encourage our kids to eat in healthier ways and exercise more and do things to bring down obesity. We can do things to keep our kids away from some of the endocrine disrupting chemicals. We can do things, we were talking about this before, um, to limit our kids' exposure to um, artificial light and make sure that they get enough sleep and so forth. So we could do some things. Um, I think the, the main lesson about what we can do after the fact 
is to recognize that early maturing girls are a particularly vulnerable population. And I think we need to treat them that way. They don't need to be singled out as such, but I think that, that parents and you know, physicians and teachers should recognize that there is a set of psychological issues that early maturing girls have to deal with that other girls don't have to deal with and to, and to be sensitive to that. There's a terrific book came out last year called The New Puberty, which is just about this issue, and it's, um, I, I highly recommend it. So we all have heard the, the often mockery of people as they're going into their 20s who they'll never leave home, they're never going to get a job, they're never going to be independent, that they stay children forever, they're in the basement playing video games. And there's a fair bit of, I think, cultural disdain often directed at the population for whom adolescence is prolonged much more than it has been for earlier generations. And you have a, have a sort of surprising yeah. take on the implications at the other end of the fact that adolescence lasts longer. Right. So let, let, let's first just sort of establish that, in fact, it does last longer. So if you look at data and you say, let's compare the average 25-year-old today with uh, that person's parents' generation when that generation was 25. So twice as likely to still be a student, half as likely to be um, employed full-time, um, uh, 50% more likely to still take, be taking money from home to live. So there's no question that on the sort of standard indicators of being an adult. Certainly much less likely to be married or have children. or Yes, be, yes, know. right. Um, so people are taking more time. Now, I think there are um, several narratives in the popular press about this. One is that this is because we raised them to be lazy and narcissistic uh, and that they are delaying these transitions because they can and because mom and dad will put the bill while they're taking their sweet time finding themselves. Um, I don't think that that's true, and I don't think there's any evidence um, in survey data to suggest that today's young people are more narcissistic or self-absorbed than their parents were when they were that age. Um, it tends to be a time when people are often quite self-absorbed, regardless of the generation that they're a part of. Um, the other s story that's told about it, which is one that I'm more inclined toward, um, is that this is a rational response to the labor force. That as the, the labor force has required more and more education to get a good job, and we know that that's the case, um, that it, it makes sense to stay in school longer and, and, and uh, amass more years of education. And if you're going to do that, then you're not going to be earning money. Then you're going to be depending on your parents for some financial support. And if you're still depending on your parents for financial support and you're still a student, you're going to be less inclined to want to get married, much less have children. So I think that this is not a psychological phenomenon as much as it is a kind of economic phenomenon. Now, I don't think that it's a bad thing. And, and the reason that I don't think it's a bad thing, um, which is so complicated to try to explain in a couple of sentences, but, but basically, um, the, I believe that the longer you can delay becoming an adult in these ways, the longer you can maintain brain plasticity that's characteristic of adolescence. Um, so I think that rather than rushing kids into adulthood, um, we should be trying to find ways to give them opportunities to have experiences during their early 20s um, that help take advantage of the fact that the brain 
is still malleable and still quite plastic. So rather than if you, if you at age 20, start an entry-level job that's going to be fairly routine and are you know, married and settled down and your domestic life is you're, you know, living in one place, that there are fewer stimuli, fewer new experiences, fewer inputs with which you can take advantage of all the new connections that your brain is capable of making as opposed to if you are in graduate school or you're traveling or you're having a lot of different exactly. enrichment experiences. Right. So, so um, and, and I think an important point to recognize um, is that one of the things that keeps your brain plastic is having new and challenging and stimulating experiences. Novelty is a huge contributor to brain plasticity during times when the brain is still malleable. So now you think, well, what's going to increase my chances of having novel and interesting and stimulating experiences? Taking an entry-level job or staying in college? Meeting all kinds of new people or getting married? For everybody, marital happiness takes a precipitous dive during the first year of marriage. Um, you are never as happy as you are the day you get married. And one of the reasons for that, um, is, that is that you experience, um, you experience a major drop in novelty. I mean, there are only so many ways you can make a meatloaf. And there are only so many conversations you can have about the job that you, that you had. And so I think that when you make the transition into adulthood at a relatively earlier age, you are making this transition into a highly routinized and repetitive environment at an earlier age, and that may, may begin to shut down brain plasticity. We know how important brain plasticity is. The other thing that was such a revelation to me was about just how different parts of the brain work in adolescence, particularly the reward centers, yeah. which has huge implications for how we try to limit the risky behaviors that drive us all crazy in our kids and encourage the responsible, mature behaviors. Can you explain why it is that sweet is sweeter and sex is sexier and booze tastes better when you're 17 than when you're 37 sure. or 47? Sure. Or... All true. <laughs> so, 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 so I'm sure most of you have heard of the, neuro, of the neurotransmitter dopamine. Um, dopamine uh, serves many functions in the brain, but one of its most important is for the experience of reward or pleasure. And, and sometimes neuroscientists joke about um, us experiencing a little dopamine squirt whenever we either experience something pleasant or anticipate something pleasant. And you get a anything that's rewarding to human beings produces the squirt. So it can be money, or it can be sex, or it can be drugs. Um, or it can be praise. Um, now, one of the effects of puberty, um, which I talk about in the book at length, because I don't think people understand, that puberty is not just about becoming a bigger and more sexual person. Pu pubertal hormones have huge effects on the brain. And one of the effects of pubertal hormones on the brain is to increase the density of dopamine receptors in the brain's pleasure centers, in the brain's reward centers, particularly in pathways between the limbic system and the, pre, and the prefrontal cortex. And so there is more dopamine activity in the brain's reward centers during adolescence than at any other stage of life. We know this from MRI experiments, where, and, and we do some of this in our lab, um, where if we put people in the scanner and we show them pictures of rewarding stimuli, 
like smiling faces or piles of coins, and we do this with children and teenagers and adults, you see a much stronger activation in adolescence than you do before or after. That's a very, very robust, well-replicated finding. Now, what that means subjectively is that good things feel even better when you're an adolescent. So, I mean, for the teenagers in the room, this is good news. For those of you who are beyond that, it's not such good news. But nothing will ever feel as good to you for the rest of your life <laughs> as things felt when you were an adolescent. And you can probably remember the experience of being out with your friends and laughing and having a great time or, or you know, the, the early sexual experiences that you had or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's because there's more dopamine activity, so it's easier to experience pleasure during adolescence. One of the consequences of that is that it motivates us to seek out experiences that we think are going to be rewarding, even if those experiences have some danger or risk attached to them. Um, and there is a marked increase in what psychologists call sensation-seeking during adolescence. That is the pursuit of exciting and novel experiences in order to get the sensation. So let me ask if this rings true for people in the room. Um, lots of us, when we were teenagers, enjoyed driving really fast. How many of you enjoyed driving in a car really fast when you were a teenager? Right. How many of you still like driving really fast in the car? So some of you are still growing up. Um, <laughs> But, but most of us experience a decline in sensation-seeking as we get older. Roller coasters feel much better when you're an adolescent than they do when you're um, an adult. Now, one of the problems that this causes is that a lot of the things that kids do that endanger their health um, are done in the pursuit of excitement. And we spend you know, millions and millions of dollars every year, trying to persuade kids not to do these things. Not to try drugs, not to smoke cigarettes, not to have sex, not to drive recklessly. You know, the list goes on and on. Um, and what I point out in the book is that these educational programs have almost no impact at all on how kids behave. Because it isn't that they don't know the risks. Exactly. It isn't, it isn't ignorance that we're addressing. That's they, right. They know these things are dangerous. Telling them that they're dangerous, finding all sorts of new ways to tell them that these things are dangerous doesn't change anything because that's not the problem. Ignorance is not the problem. Right. And in fact, if, it's what, if you do surveys in which you give people lists of things that are risky and you ask them how risky they are and you give these surveys to people of different ages, you don't see age differences in people's ratings of how risky they are. And in fact, if you ask people to estimate the probability of these things happening to them, that teenagers overestimate more than adults overestimate how likely these are to occur. So it's clear that adolescents are aware of all these risks. And, and, and to their credit, the educational programs that I said a moment ago don't work, work very well at increasing kids' knowledge. And, and, and their beliefs. They just don't change their behavior. So, so to ask the obvious question, yeah. if you are a parent or a teacher confronting the risk-taking behavior of kids, and it's so motivated by their reward centers, and so threats and, and warnings don't work as nearly as well as the promise of rewards, what's the intervention, what's the right way to set up the guardrails to keep kids safe 
if the way we've been doing it is the wrong way. There are some things that we can do societally from a public health standpoint that would help. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One, we have uh, uh, brought down the rate of teen smoking dramatically over um, the, the last several decades. And it's about between 15 and 20 percent of American teenagers smoke, much lower than it ever had been. The most important contributor to that has been the increase in the price of cigarettes. It hasn't been anti-smoking education. And so one thing that we could do, and in fact the Institute of Medicine in the United States just released a report in March of this year suggesting that we raise the age, the minimum legal purchase age of, of cigarettes to 21. And Hawaii just passed a law that's going to do that. There's one that's pending passage in California. I think New York City now has 21 as a minimum smoking age. If I make it hard for you to get cigarettes because they're too expensive or because you're not going to pass the ID check, that's going to be a more effective way of getting you not to smoke than telling you that smoking is going to cause emphysema down the road. Um, supervising kids and monitoring them is also an effective deterrent. You want to make it harder for kids to put themselves in situations in which they're going to hurt themselves or do things that are tempting that they have kind of biologically understandable reasons to be tempted by. Now, one thing that I, that I talk about in the book is the need for good after-school programming that three age. to six is more dangerous than Friday, other Friday night. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that most kids' experimentation with the things that we don't want them to do occurs in their own homes or in their friends' homes between three and six in the afternoon. And so if you are the parent of a teenager and you can find a way to have your kids supervised in structured activity during that time, um, you are going to have more success in diminishing your teenager's alcohol use than by telling your teenager not to drink. So that's another thing parents can do. Uh, one other, one, just one other strategy, and I, and I discuss this because this is what I spend my time doing research on, is that this increase in sensation seeking during adolescence is exacerbated by the presence of other teenagers. So the social brain, you talk about the social brain. Right. What's the social brain? So th there, there's a, a network of regions in the brain that responds to social information that is active when we are trying to figure out what other people think of us, trying to figure out what other people's emotional states are, um, trying to figure out uh, where we stand in a social hierarchy. And this social brain develops very, very rapidly during adolescence. And it is one reason why kids um, are so hypersensitive to the opinions of their friends and so susceptible to peer influence. And we've done a bunch of studies in which we have found that if I put you in a situation where I show you a rewarding stimulus, and I'm imaging your brain, let's say it's smiling faces, um, and I have you do that with your friends in an adjacent room watching you in the scanner. I will get more reward-centered activity in your brain than if I show you the exact same stimulus and when you're alone. Right? And we've done in a series of studies, we have shown that the, the peers are so important during adolescence that they activate the brain's reward centers in ways that make adolescence seek more rewarding, crazy, exciting 
things. And I, I think that this probably will ring true for most of you. The teenagers do a lot of dumb things when they're with their friends that they would never do if they were by themselves. And we think it's because being with your friends changes the way your brain works during adolescence in ways that it doesn't do during adults. So we've done these studies with adults and kids. And the presence of peers doesn't change reward activation in the adult brain. It just changes it in the adolescent brain. So your choices are either homeschool your kids and never (laughs) let them be around other kids or make sure that all of their friends are complete straight arrow kids who aren't going to... Well, or don't try to minimize. You can't. You can't eliminate, but try to minimize the amount of time your kids spend unsupervised with their friends. A a perfect example of this comes from data on automobile crashes. If you look at data on the likelihood of getting into a car crash um, as a function of how many passengers you have in the car, if the driver is a teenager, it goes up exponentially. A teenager who is driving a car with three other teenagers in the car is at comparable risk for having a crash as is a teenager who is drinking and driving. Um, If you look at data on adults, it doesn't increase the number of crashes that you have to have passengers in the car. I know lots of parents that would never, ever give their teenager the car keys if they smelled alcohol on their teenager's breath. But I know plenty of parents who don't even give it a second thought to think that their teenager is going out driving with two, three, four, five other kids in the car. And it's very dangerous, especially during the the early years of driving. And that's why lots of states have laws that restrict passengers in cars driven by teenagers until teenagers are a certain age or have a certain amount of driving experience. I don't want to only focus on avoiding trouble. I actually also want you to have a chance to talk about what contributes to success. And, And so I wonder if you could talk a little about the relative value of talent versus tenacity. Sure. The single most important skill to have in life is self-control. Self-control is a better predictor of of mental health and success and happiness in life than any other thing that we've ever been able to measure. It's more important than intelligence. So if you're trying to predict um, which kids are going to do well in school or which kids are going to do well in the labor force, the ones with strong self-control, strong self-regulation is what we describe it as a psychologist, Um, will do better than the ones with weaker self-regulation. And if you do a study in which you look at both of those as predictors, both intelligence and self-regulation, self-regulation is a better predictor. Um, This is very important for those of us interested in teenagers because I mentioned earlier that one of the parts of the brain that changes a lot during adolescence is the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that governs the development of self-control. And the fact that the prefrontal cortex is still malleable during adolescence means that we can do things at this age that will help strengthen our kids' self-regulatory abilities. Like and, what? Well, I'll give you a, a few examples. Um, one that I'm sure you've heard over and over again at this festival is mindfulness training. So there's a lot of good research showing that Things like meditation and things like yoga are very good for the strengthening of prefrontal systems um, and downstream for the strengthening of self-control. Raising your children in ways that expect self-control and encourage self-control helps build self-control. So there's a style of parenting that I describe in the book that 
we call authoritative parenting, those of us who study this for a living. It's a style of parenting that combines being warm and being firm. And kids who are raised in that kind of a household score higher on measures of self-control than kids who are raised in households that are either very permissive or very authoritarian. Um, so uh, tiger mothering is not very good for the development of self-control, but neither is being overly indulgent, overly permissive. Physical exercise turns out to be very good for the development of self-control. Uh, and uh, you know, it's a real shame that one of the things that our schools have cut out of the curriculum um, is physical education in lots of places. But it turns out that, that aerobic exercise and team sports seem to be especially good for this, but all aerobic exercise is good for the development of self-control. And then the last one I'll mention, because it is, again, something that we can do, is sleep. Right? Uh, it sounds insane to say it, but the recommended number of hours of sleep for a teenager today is nine hours per night. And almost no teenagers in the United States get even eight hours a night, much less nine hours a night. But um, kids who don't get enough sleep um, uh, have much more difficulty controlling their emotions and their behaviors and their thoughts. So there are things that we can do. Um, I'll add one more. Demanding kids more sophisticated cognitive functioning, pushing them harder. Um, is very good for the development of prefrontal systems. And our schools don't demand enough from our kids in this way. I know that sounds crazy to some of you who have kids who are in these really pressure cooker schools. Um, but what I can discuss is that the kind of pressure that those schools are putting on kids is not good for this kind of brain development. What's the good kind versus the bad kind? The good kind is pressure that challenges you to do a little bit more than you were capable of doing before the challenge. It's something that we call scaffolding. So I want to make sure that what I'm, what I'm asking you to do isn't repetitive, which is why so much of the homework and school assignments that kids do does absolutely nothing for their brain development. Um, but I want to make sure that what I'm doing is not so overwhelming that you withdraw from it. So it's finding that sweet spot where you're, you're challenged and encouraged to do a little bit better, um, but not so much better that you feel like it's out of your reach. And uh, what, we, what we know from studies of American school children is that you know, you've got the, the kids who grow up in dire poverty, terrible schools. We, we talk a lot about it as we should the educational problems they have. And then there's you know, the, the top 10% of the kids that are taking five AP classes and they're going to elite colleges and universities. There's a whole set of issues dealing with that, but there's the whole swath in the middle that we don't talk about very much. And what surveys of those kids show is that they're bored out of their minds. They're, they're bored out of their minds. I was, I was, I was reading a paper recently um, by a, an education researcher who visited 20 schools, spent 500 hours observing. These are the typical high schools um, in, it happened to be in the Midwest of the United States. Um, so not honors classes and not remedial classes. And she was stunned at how boring and stultifying the experience of sitting in a high school classroom is. And she said it was like there was an implicit deal that was made between the teachers and the kids. You don't misbehave. You don't be disruptive. I won't ask very much 
from you. You'll get the grades you want to get. You, you you want, and we'll all be. It'll be a big win-win for everybody. And that's what high school in America is like for the vast majority of kids. You attribute that to the fact that at the elementary school level and even the middle school level, there is not that great a distinction between the performance of American students and students in in. Right. countries that we compete with academically and measure ourselves against, but the real fall-off when we really drop is in high school. Right. So, so you know, we, we hear all the time, we read all the time about international comparisons um, that show that American kids are at the bottom of the, the world. That is only partially true. If you look at the international comparisons of elementary school kids, we're near the top of the world. And if you look at international comparisons of middle school kids, we're kind of in the center of the distribution. It's only when you get to high school that we see this incredibly poor performance. So why do we either give up or make that deal? Or why, why does that happen in schools so broadly? I don't think we understand the reasons. I, I, I honestly don't. It's not, I can tell you what it's not. It's not because we spend less. Right. It's not because the teachers are more poorly trained. It's not because the student-teacher ratios are worse. Um, it's not because um, kids spend less time in class. Um, I've looked at all those things. And, you know, we, we, we actually, compared to what we spend in elementary school teachers, we pay high school teachers more money. They tend to be better trained. Um, it, it, it's not due to the things that we often think about. I think it comes back to the main theme of the book which is our view of what adolescence is. And I think that our view of adolescence in America is that it's something to survive. If you go to the bookstore and you look on the bookshelves where they keep books for parents of teenagers, you're going to find a bunch of survival guides. I mean, the number That's of, something for the parents to survive. Even if you look at some of the ones for kids, it still says, you know, a survival guide to middle school. But... But let, let's set that aside for a second and say, what do we as adults think about adolescence? What do we want for our kids? And I think too many of us think, if I can just get through this without my kid getting killed, pregnant, incarcerated, addicted, uh, I'll be grateful. Now, clearly, we want to set a bar a little bit higher than that. <laughs> But, but, but I think that if you, if you go into something, I, I, it struck me one day that we think about adolescence, it's kind of like the root canal of parenting. It's like you, it's going to be a terrible experience and you're just going to hold your breath and get through it. And if that's how you look at it, you're not going to invest a lot in, 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 in trying to actually facilitate positive growth. So we have an orientation, I, I think, in America toward adolescence that says that what we should be doing is preventing kids from developing problems. That's what we talk about when we talk about adolescence. That's what the National Institutes of Health funds when they fund research on adolescence. It's almost impossible to get um, grant funding to, to support normal, much less positive development during adolescence. You've got to be studying drugs or HIV um, or crime, or something like that. So we don't, I don't think that we think about adolescence as a time when we can actually do things to help people thrive. And, and I think that that is partly, that, that has gotten into the philosophy of education and the philosophy of parenting um, and the philosophy of 
societal treatment of kids. I, I think that is the root cause of the problem. And so one of the reasons that I wrote Age of Opportunity was to try to change people's minds about what adolescence is and what we can do um, and how we can take advantage inst instead of squander the opportunity that brain plasticity gives us. That was author and psychology professor Lawrence Steinberg speaking with Time Magazine's Nancy Gibbs at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, rate the show. It helps spread the word about the podcast. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. Thank you.